You're listening to the Intrepid Podcast, where three product strategists help entrepreneurs by giving perspectives on design, business, and technology. I'm Jim Forrest. I'm Stephen Roger. And I'm Justin Files. And joining us today is Matt Bridges from Intrepid. Uh, Matt is our lovely CTO, but in a past life was a founder of a company called Timber. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you. I, I like the lovely adjective. I am very lovely. <laughs> <laughs> we agree. Um, so let's hop into it. Timber, really interesting concept. Give us the pitch. So Timber was a live music discovery app that we incubated at Intrepid uh, starting in 2012, right around the time when I joined. Um, its purpose is really to help people find what concerts were going to be happening around them and soon. Uh, similar in concept to Bantamtown and Songkick. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really much more about um, listening to the music. So letting your ears do the, the deciding about what concerts you wanted to see or what might be interesting to do tonight. Um, and uh, it was something that uh, we ran for a couple of years at Intrepid and eventually spun off into its own company and sold. Um, and so it was pretty successful for us. That's great. So do you want to give us a little background origin story about it? I mean, I know, you know, Ticketmaster bought this, but, you know, I'm curious to understand a little bit of, like, how did this come about? Um, why was Intrepid the, the origin of this? And um, are there anything kind of, you know, secret sauce or cool things that you built into this that people might be interested in hearing about? Sure, yeah. So when I started at Intrepid, Intrepid was about 14 people, so I was employee 15. Um, and I was hired as the CTO. Um, I didn't know how to make mobile apps, so that was kind of an important thing for the CTO to know how to do. Um, in order to really figure out how to make mobile apps, I obviously did some work here. I did a lot of learning. I asked a lot of questions, um, kind of built stuff on my own, but I really needed like a side project to sink my teeth into to build something real and kind of prove to myself that, okay, I know this platform. Um, so I went to a hackathon um, it's called the Boston Innovation Challenge. It was uh, held at the Harvard Innovation Lab um, sometime around May of 2012. Uh, and uh, it was kind of an interesting hackathon. It was a two-week hackathon um, where you'd you know, go there on, on the first day. There were a couple of presentations about uh, different themes you could latch onto for your little hackathon project. Um, there was one local musician who gave a presentation about um, how the internet was great for music. It was really democratizing, like everybody could put their music out there, and so distribution was really, really easy, but monetization was impossible um, because it was getting harder and harder to make money actually selling or streaming music on the internet because there's so much and so much noise, and kind of the local musicians, um, you know, you have to be you know, signed to a label to really get enough exposure to, to make a dent in, in making a living at that. Um, most, most kind of independent musicians make money from shows. Uh, and he was really frustrated that all the people in his neighborhood who were kind of around who could go to the shows, there was no way for him on the internet to just target those people. So uh, he was thinking, like, how can we use technology? How can we use location services? How can we use mobile to um, make people more aware of what was actually going on in their community and, and reach out? So um, I thought it would be cool to kind of mash up two APIs. You have the Spotify API, which is... Um, something that you can build into an app and, and lets you stream kind of any music that's on Spotify um, and actually listen to tracks. And then you had, at the time, the Jambase API. Um, Jambase.com, it's a kind of concert repository. You can give it a zip code. You can um, you know, ask what concerts are going to happen in your particular location. Um, so I just mashed up those two APIs and said, okay, give me all of the 
the concerts near me within 10 miles over the next week and got a list and then you click on one of them and it's playing the music from that band. So uh, rather than having to do the thing where you look at jam bass and you Google search them and you find a YouTube video or two or you download some music, um, it was kind of all in one experience. That's fantastic. And um, so, you know, I, I tend to think that products like that, when you hear about that, you're like, oh, I, I think I know a product like that. But I actually think that the user experience kind of differentiated it and put it into a different league. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, so I actually didn't even know about Bands in Town or Songkick when I first was making this little... Was hackathon. Bands in Town actually a thing back then? It was a it was. thing back then, yeah. It had just sort of started and was gaining momentum and was featured by Apple, so it, it had a, a bunch of users already. Um, so I mentioned it was a two-week hackathon. Like I brought the little prototype I made back to Intrepid, and everyone there was like, oh, that's really cool. We should actually turn this into a real, real product with our downtime. Um, and uh, we, we did so, but um, when I went to uh, present at the hackathon, um, I got asked questions from the judges. Um, and the judges were asking all the, the typical hackathon questions that turned into a, like a pitch competition. And I was in software developer mode and kind of bristly. And like you know, I didn't really think about a business model. I just wanted to make a cool thing. I think I actually said those words. Um, <laughs> Uh, and and uh, I think uh, it was uh, Schneider Mike who asked, uh, like, hey, um, you know, do you know about Bands in Town or Soundkick or any of those? And I was like, nope, never heard of them. Um, so I, I was pretty prickly, uh, but I ended up winning the hackathon, so it was great. Um, but what everybody said was the thing that we had made and, and the attention we had paid to the user experience and the simplicity of the experience, that the, you don't log in, you just hit a button and boom, there's 30 concerts that are happening tonight and you can just swipe through all of the music. Um, that was really compelling at the time, and, and it was not, not something that anybody had done. Yeah, it, it, I, I'd love to get your thoughts. It sounds like mm -hmm. the technologies of like Hotel Tonight, etc., that kind of movement where people yeah. were just like in the moment making a decision, not a huge product built around it, just a very focused experience. Yeah, I think tying into that, something that you mentioned that is certainly something that's happened over the last few years is the idea of an app really just being stitching together a lot of other services. Um, a lot of other cloud services that you can use. And what does that give you? It gives you time to focus specifically on one experience for one, um, for one audience and, and kind of launch in that way. Can you talk a bit about how that enabled you to actually get this thing done in two weeks and that sort of thing and how you see that uh, going in the future, how we use that in Intrepid and so forth? Yeah, so being able to leverage the open APIs that Jambase and Spotify had, had given was huge for us. Um, so we, we did like, you know, the hackathon version of the app in a couple of weeks. It took another two and a half months to really polish it up and get it out into the app store. The first version of the app had literally no backend infrastructure. There was not, nothing, no servers to run. Uh, we had no idea who these users were who were downloading the app. We had analytics in the app, but that was the only touch we had uh, to having any clue who the people were because there was literally no login, no backend. Um, and when we launched it, uh, we actually got a lot of kudos of like low low friction to kind of get to the meat of the app, no barriers. Um, and uh, we saw kind of over the next year, there was definitely a movement to to delay the, the friction points to as, as late as you could in an app. Um, we've seen things like with the permissions, um, kind of uh, instead of just bombarding people with a bunch of stuff right at onboarding, waiting until they actually need it so they have the context of why do, why do I need it. Um, it kind of bit us in the butt when we wanted to actually monetize this thing and, and create accounts and logins and when do we do that? What's the right 
you know, kind of carrot that we dangle to ask people to give us their information or connect Facebook or that sort of thing. That was a conundrum kind of uh, in version version two um, that, that was tough. So how did you implement that carrot? Um, we ended up um, having some features that were uh, you know, showing what friends were on the app and what concerts they were going to and saying you should also connect your Facebook account so that, that you can kind of collectively figure out what concerts you're going to, what concerts you like, uh, kind of enable that collective experience of, of concert discovery. And was that login wall the same experience for existing users versus new users or did you get them to the goal of signing up from sort of two different paths. It was the same for existing users and new users. Like there was, no, there was still no login wall at the very beginning. I was very dogmatic that I really loved the fact that you download the app and in, in one tap you're looking at concerts <coughs> and you can, you get the value prop of the app within 30 seconds of, of opening it. Um, and, and that was really powerful and a lot of the reviews, the positive press that we had um, really mentioned that. I mean, I guess the best user onboarding is no user onboarding whatsoever, <laughs> right, right? exactly. Like, if you don't need it, great. <laughs> Right. So I'm, I'm curious from an artist's perspective if you ever got feedback, um, you know, because you're saying the origin story really came from a local musician. Um, did you ever round back with this person or do any testing or it, how did it affect the local music community? We didn't actually go back to, to that particular musician. I think his name was Jake Pardee. Um, I should actually go back and talk to him and, and tell him this whole story because I don't I don't know that he knows um, kind of where it took us. Yeah, well, it's going to be on the internet pretty soon. So you can yeah, yeah. I could just point him in the direction of the podcast. Um, but um, I, I think one of the things that, that we noticed a lot was people, especially the independent artists, loved how the order that, that we put people in in, in kind of the iconic... Um, like piano keys style interface that we had um, was completely, you know, democratic. Um, there, there was there was no favoritism towards like Madonna at the the TD Garden or like random band that's their first show at Great Scott. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so everyone was sort of on a level playing field and really just like letting your ears do the deciding of what music you want to listen to rather than having some um, promotion or you know advertisement um, assault you. And, and have that be the way that people figure it out. I would love to kind of jump onto that and talk about your audience. Um, I think to me that sounds fantastic. I think to me as a music evangelist that also sounds fantastic, a live music evangelist, like if I could just give my parents, you know, this thing and not have them just listen to, you know, radio pop all the time because they can just have their ears decide, that's a very ideal state. Did you find that you actually got to that state, or what would you say? Would you say you're more in the enthusiast community? Um, how do you plan to get from the enthusiast community to the mass market? I think because of the interface and because of the ease at scanning through and um, you know picking out names you recognize, and we eventually added things like um, artists that were in your iTunes library or Spotify library, where like they had little dots on their names, so you could you know quickly scan through and figure it out. Mm -hmm. um, one of the the features that like from the very first day I brought it back from the hackathon to when we ended up wrapping it up, the most asked for thing was, can we filter by genres? Like, I, I only want to see the, the ones that I know I like. Um, and I was pretty dogmatic the entire way through that that would ruin the experience. That um, just like 
filtering it down to just a couple of shows a night makes it feel really sparse, makes it feel like kind of bad content. Um, you might not get everything. And um, what I loved about it was the discovery aspect. It was about finding new music and exposing yourself to something you m might not be exposed to. Um, it's like the you know, Twitter 140 character limit. It, like, it creates a different experience by intentionally cutting off something that, that people might automatically want. Right. So we talk to clients a lot about sort of the paradox of choice and that usually being a negative thing, but it sounds like in this situation you felt it was positive in some way. Well, the, the, a lot of the experience of using the app, you're not looking at it, you're listening to it. Um, and like the way that I would use it, um, I would be, I commute to work every day, I have about 30 minutes in my car, I would tap on the first artist that was on the concerts that were playing that night. Um, and it would play one song from every artist while it's sitting, you know, in my in my dash. And I would, you know, star the songs that I liked. And, and I found a ton of new music that I never, ever would find. In fact, my favorite act right now I found um, because he happened to be playing at the Middle East the week that I was developing the app. Um, it was Maddian was playing at the, at the Middle East. Um, and, like, now whenever I hear Icarus, like, I'm taken back to that exact moment of building the app. But there's a whole bunch of stuff from around that time. Um, when I was listening to it in the car that has shaped the way I listen to music, you know, from then on. So tell, tell me a little bit about that experience. So, you know, for people who don't know Timber, um, you know, you had referenced it's an iconic piano style interface. Ah. Um, and then obviously there's, so that seems like maybe that's a list view of some sort, a very cool list view. And then there's a detail view. And then you're talking about something that almost sounds like an autoplay cue or something. Right. Can you dive into that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, so um, essentially the, the, the interface of the app, um, when I was building it, um, I had never used UIKit before. I was really new to the platform and I just wanted to experiment with what was possible um, and not, you know, at the time, a lot of apps were just conforming to HIG, the Human Interface Guidelines uh, of iOS, um, and uh, there were there started to be some really standout apps that were just breaking out of the mold, um, and we we started to call the the other apps the kind of cookie cutter ones. We called them HIG vomit, <laughs> uh, and like when I did it, I was like, okay, what what is possible? What can we do? And so I kind of eschewed any standard iOS controls and wanted to make everything completely custom. And when I brought it back, you know, it was just you know swiping through um, concerts. I kind of made it like a poster page. It was like a concert poster. I was trying to programmatically generate a concert poster. So it used album artwork with kind of these uh, translucent overlays on top of it. Um, when I brought it back to the office and everyone was like, oh my God, that's really cool. And, re and like, I would definitely use this. Um, but we, we need like a, like a master list of everything that you kind of drill down. We need like a master detail kind of view. Um, I actually went on vacation over the weekend. Uh, I took a four day weekend and we were gonna present at the hackathon and I was like, hey, Colin, Colin Brash, who is one of our uh, directors here, director of engineering, um, can you like make a list view and like, just like go crazy. Just don't do anything normal. Just just make it crazy. Um, and he came back, and, and it was this amazing kind of... Uh, it's a white background where there, there's these uh, really high-contrast black blocks, um, each one representing an artist, a concert. Um, and uh, the, the kind of typography within that was intentionally kind of randomized and jumbled with two different typefaces, actually. Um, and when you were scrolling it, um, he did all these animations um, of uh, 
uh, like these bars that were coming in and going out. So nothing like our philosophy about the UI was nothing standard, everything custom. Let's just let's go crazy and see what we can do. Um, it was hard to kind of keep it cohesive that way. We had to really self-edit a lot and we threw away a lot of stuff. Uh, but it was really liberating and, you know, it was just total playtime and it was really fun. Sometimes when I look back at like the web of the early 2000s, I think about moments like this, right, where it's like maybe there wasn't a rule book, there was no material design sort of type um, standards that we were thinking about. Maybe once, you know, responsive design, etc., and semantic design came out, things started to change. But there was something kind of like that cowboy era, that wild, wild west era that was super fun, which actually exposed, I think, maybe the highest form of creativity. Where do you think we are now? Do you think do you think we could you could get away with a timber in this era? That's a really good question. Um, I think there's a lot of really amazing interaction design, and we, we have really um, we we have room in the zeitgeist for some really avant-garde experiences. Um, so so I don't think it's like. Uh, we're in the, the shackles of material design and nobody ever breaks out of it. Um, I, I do think it makes overall usage of the platform easier when people sort of conform to, oh, okay, the plus button down there, I know what it means. Um, and when I want to go back for, you know, in a stack navigation, I know where to look for the back button, that kind of thing. Um, so there, there are pluses and minuses, but I think um, when people want to go crazy, they can. There's, there's room for that kind of in, in today's app ecosystem and really just interaction design ecosystem. So as a, a follow-up to that, I mean, I know, you know, this, this got sold. You know, you kind sure. of had, you had that dream moment of, like, building something that someone actually acquired, which is, I think, you know, for a lot of us, that's like an, a rock star ambition in a way. Um, what happened when they purchased, right? So did the UI change? Like, what... Do you still see it, it as your child? It did, um, but I, I mean, I can't, I'll kind of go back to like we we built this thing and we launched it, and at that point, it was like we've already won, right? Uh, we hadn't sold it or anything. It wasn't its own company. It was like we built this thing. It was a portfolio piece for Intrepid. We we do mobile app consulting. So at that point, we had already won, um, and uh, like we we ended up launching it a week before the iPhone five came out and iOS six. Um, it got featured. Um, somebody at Apple took notice and uh, we were very, very lucky and fortunate that they featured it and it happened to be that day when everyone was getting new phones. Um, so we got a lot of inbound interest and people were, you know, VCs were like, hey, take this money and turn this into a thing. So, you know, a year and a half later, having gone through the whole exercise of, all right, we spun it out as a company, we raised money, we spent a lot of that money, we tried to build an audience, we tried to monetize. Um, looking in the rearview mirror at that whole experience, I think the thing that we, we ended up uh, realizing was it was impossible to try to run two companies at once. You know, we were running a consulting firm that was at that point 30 people. Um, and this mobile app, which was its own thing, um, and really it was a music app. It wasn't a technology company, it was a music company. And we were technology guys. Um, and so that's what ultimately motivated us to, to look to sell it. Um, and the, the buyer that we found that we eventually sold it to was this company in the UK called Seatwave. Um, and they, they, you know, their motivation for purchasing it was they themselves were looking for a buyer. Um, and having a technology story, their multiple gets higher. So the, their revenue times some multiple is how much they're worth. Um, and if they're just straight market share of tickets, it's kind of 1x revenue. And if they have a technology play on top of it, that multiple starts to go up. And so it can be much more valuable that way. 
Um, so we ended up selling it to them. Um, one of the things that they wanted to do though was like they had a completely different brand. Timber was its own thing. It was a cool technology, but um, they wanted to evolve the UI. And of course, the, the, like really stung me in the gut of like this this thing, which uh, really the the press and the user response to this was. I just love the UI. I love how it feels. I love how it looks. I love using it. I love looking at it. Um, and so they wanted to change it, which hurt a little bit, but they owned it at that point. Um, uh, so we, we did end up, uh, they wanted something less stark, less um, black and white and edgy, and something more colorful. Um, and we ended up doing a, a kind of a concert lighting, um, like a neon-themed um, version of the app that had very, very similar functionality, but was more... Um, photos and overlays of, of neon colors instead of um, minimalistic sharp edges, black and white. Yeah. So you talked about getting funded and then spending a lot of that money. Uh, a, a lot of times when people think about sort of building and launching a product and that product being successful, they're really focused on the technology side of it and they think most of their spends coming around that technology side. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you spent money on customer acquisition and the lessons you learned from that and how you might do it differently if you were to do it again or in your current role as you advise clients on customer acquisition? Sure. Um, one of the interesting things that we found out very quickly was if you're going to start a company and it's a music company, um, the first five people in the company probably aren't engineers. <laughs> um, so one of the very first things we did once we raised the round was to hire a director of marketing. Um, Andrea Garvey, who actually now um, is at Intrepid, um, so she, she came along for the ride and made the transition, but um, uh, we were all engineers um, uh, building this thing, and, and so having a, somebody thinking about how we're going to market it, how we're going to think about the audience, and how we, what kind of budget are we going to need to get to a certain kind of daily active, monthly active, um, and you know how are we going to measure success? Is it um, actually getting ticket conversions? Is it just impressions? Um, who's going to pay us? Is it going to be artists? Is it going to be labels? Is it going to be festivals? Is it going to be venues? Um, uh, obviously, our end users are people attending concerts, but knowing who's going to pay you um, and having that in mind as well when you're designing the user experience um, is equally as important. Do you think that somebody right now could either raise or even successfully launch a company that is in a similar vein as Timber is? Um, so the, tic ship sailed the, the ticketing space um, <clears throat> is really, really hard to, to get into because um, essentially there's a monopoly there, Ticketmaster. Uh, we actually met with Ticketmaster. Um, the reason that Ticketmaster owns Timber now is they bought Seatwave, um, which is not surprising because they just eat market share um, and, and live sort of in a monopoly world. Um, we actually met with them, and I think verbatim they called us a fly on the wall and insignificant. Um, because the thing is that, that most of the lucrative concerts already sell up. They, they don't need to drum up more demand. So it's a convenience for consumers, but that convenience isn't worth a lot of money to the people paying it. Um, so uh, there, there's very, very little room in the ticket margins to, to really make a dent. Um, I think Bands in Town and Songkick... Um, they do a decent job, and, and, and they have uh, enough volume that they, they can negotiate better rates with the, the ticket providers. Um, but uh, there wasn't much room for the little guy in terms of, in terms of revenue, just, for, just from tickets. 
I think that actually takes me back to kind of an earlier question that I kind of want to rephrase a bit, which is that, is there a way to move towards the mass market in something like this when the truth is people are going to go to the Kesha concert all the time uh-huh. because they hear about it from their friends and they don't, that doesn't, it's no different to them than going to something at the Middle East. Like it's just something that they understand and they know and they know they're going to enjoy. So, so like, is there a market for the long tail? What's the incremental value? It's, you kind of started in the long tail and you're kind yeah. of going the other way. So like, is there, what is the incremental value for the general mass market consumer who enjoys listening to radio pop, but are they ever going to get into that, that deeper understanding of music and that deeper love of music or does it not really matter to them um maybe maybe not and i don't know that we ever really answered that question um i don't i don't think that we had enough of a runway and and track record and really measurements to really segment our audience into into the different Mm -hmm. uh constituents of you know the hardcore i go to you know five concerts a week or the i really like adele and i'm just going to go to one concert a year Um, i I don't think we really um did enough uh kind of uh, metrics evaluation and, and measurement at the time to really figure out the difference between those two audiences. It, it's interesting. I actually see Timber as a sociological, like a musicology sociological app more than a like, I'm going to drive ticket sales. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you could go down that route. I The thing that I find fascinating still about Timber is how geolocation actually helps you understand the sound of a city. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's like a, that's an underlying thing there. I don't know if many people talk about it, but there's something very we had cool a, about that. we had a little bit of an identity crisis early on in Timber. Like you know, we're writing writing our mission statement or honing our pitch. What's our what's our one sentence description of what Timber does? Um, and we landed on you know helps you find concerts that are happening soon and close, right? Um, but that wasn't the way I used the app. Uh, I was a new father. I was not really going to a lot of concerts. I was using it just to discover music um, and using it like, okay, clearly the venue owners uh, in Cambridge and Boston know what they're talking about in terms of who's relevant. Um, so I'm going to just listen to what's happening in Boston and get a good idea of what does this city sound like um, and who's new and, and what's up and coming because those are the bands that are playing now as opposed to like the entire universe of music on Spotify, including bands that haven't toured for 20 years. It's like, what's new? Yeah. Um, and so that was a really good kind of dimension to look through the entire universe of music mm-hmm. as to what's who's visiting your town this week. Yeah. You know, letting the... the um, club promoters and the people who pick the acts at venues act as a, you should listen to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was super interesting. And when I would search for other cities and just see the difference, like mm-hmm. listening to San Francisco was a very different experience than listening to Boston and then listening to New York um, and listening to Nashville, just like really, really different styles of music and what appeals to the people there. So just, you know, listening to the soundscape of a city was a really interesting experience. I kind of wanted that to be that the experience we advocated for with Timber in the first place, and then it would be much more about sharing new music with your friends as opposed to going to buy tickets. Right. Um, but uh, we ended up going with the ticket route. So we had um, last week or last whenever it was that we recorded the last one. We had uh, Jonathan from Afcus in, and uh, he described his company, which of course is a B two B SaaS company, mm-hmm. very different than this. But he described it as a highly opinionated platform. Do you think that that works outside of the B2B world? Do you think that you can convince people to, to treat music in that way? Or do you need to kind of go with the, go with the flow there? That's tough. I, 
I wasn't really successful in convincing other people, at, even at Intrepid, to use timber that way. You know, people <laughs> use the tool how they want to use it. Um, I think we could have made some user experience changes to uh, make it more obvious that that was a thing you could do, and then people would discover that they liked it. Um, but uh, I think it was a less compelling uh, and obvious monetization play um, than, than the, what am I going to do tonight? Mm-hmm. Um, what events are happening around me, that, that sort of experience. And I think it's a bit of a trend that we're starting to see is at the beginning of the internet, it was all about sort of disintermediation and removing the middleman. And then we started to get overwhelmed by all of the options. And so I think a lot of the interesting companies that we're starting to see out here, this isn't a question so much as a statement, <laughs> yeah. I'd like to hear your reflection on it. Are companies that are figuring out how to be the middlemen in a more curated way. Curation, yeah. They're taking a couple APIs or a couple different services, you know, Amazon drop shipping plus something else, and then building a company for that that you could do those things yourselves, but it, it's going to take you a little bit more time or effort or really thought. It's into. fashion labels, like it's it's music labels. It's the exact same business that exists everywhere else, but then. We kind of came in as technology people were like, we're going to reinvent business. We're going to reinvent the way everything happens. And then it's yeah. just like, oh, oh, people already figured this out. Yeah, I, I think um, aggregators in general, um, you know, their, their value to the market is helping people find signal in the noise. Um, and uh, you know, there's a big personalization movement and um, a lot of people get that wrong and, and it's really easy to write a user story. Like, as a user, I want to see things that are relevant to me. But the devil's in the details there, of course. So the really good ones just know how to find the relevant stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a really valuable service. It saves people time. I tend to think of all the frustrations I have when I used to look through, say, the Boston Phoenix, for mm-hmm. those who remember that. So local, you know, Boston arts culture magazine that had concert listings for days in there. And you're just going through these venues with words, and you're just you're so excited to want to explore these things, but there's no way to access it. And then all of a sudden, here's Timber, right? Which is the first tool that I really think I've I ever witnessed that it was this immediate like this is what this sounds like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what so that was four years ago, mm-hmm. right? In a great accomplishment four years ago. Do you think anyone has like taken that concept so that like that early Matt Bridges like I want to build something fucking great um, and just blew it up like that you were like oh my god that is the vision of what it is or does Timber still stand on its own? Uh, absolutely not. Nobody has really um, filled that that space. Uh, I, bands in town and Songkick are largely unchanged from how they were in 2012. Um, I, you know, I often go to meetups and stuff, and panelists are asked, what's your favorite app? And every time I hear bands in town, I just, like, a little dagger goes through my heart. Um, because I, I think there's um, definitely something to be desired in uh, that experience, making it easier. Um, and doing, like, people who research concerts, um, many of the names that are coming to the venues, nobody has ever heard of. And it's really hard to judge a book by its cover. Um, you need to hear the freaking book. Um, and I, I don't think anybody's really nailed that experience. So our our like statute of limitations or you know non compete is up, and definitely thinking about a little side project of bringing that thing back into the world because it doesn't exist yeah. in the world right now. Uh, uh, Seatwave was a UK company; they had UK ticket data, so we took it out of the US App Store. Um, when Ticketmaster bought it, they didn't have the money or bandwidth to keep running that part of it, so they shut it down, and now it's nowhere. Um, 
So I, I definitely think that there's a void there, and, and I would love to see this thing, which um, I still get on our, you know, the Timber Facebook page. I get notifications of people saying, I got a new phone. How do I download this app? You know, three years after it's no longer available. Um, so it, there's, there's clearly a hole there, I think, anyway. I think the... Much like the hole in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> From being stabbed. Podcast title. <laughs> I don't know, I liked what Hig vomit, I think. That's, <laughs> that's going to be a tough one. It's a nice callback. I think um, not the most elegant solution, but I think actually the thing that's probably gotten the most penetration, I don't know what that space noise is that we're it's hearing about. <laughs> um, I think the thing that's gotten the most penetration is Spotify plus the Echo Nest plus their mm -hmm. band in town or whatever the heck that integration is. Songkick, actually. Is it Songkick? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, but like that kind of combo I think actually has kind of reached the mass market it's mm -hmm. just kind of a it's 17 band-aids onto Spotify that kind of put it together but um, I, I think we have to kind of admit that the but is it hyper local um, in the same way not again not the discovery piece but the dis they've they've separated them it's perhaps not the same solution but it, it solves the same problem I think you discover the music and then later it tells you if they're there yeah. Whereas this yeah. is, you discover the music that already is here and you can act upon it right away. So, so to just like push back on that, I actually think that Timber is more, from a, from a musician standpoint, Timber is more of a democracy, right? right? Like if I'm playing in Cambridge, which I will, I will actually, I could rely on Timber showing me. I can't rely on Spotify's algorithm True. to ever push my music. And like certainly that. not in real time. No. Nope which is, I, I do think is interesting. One of the things I'm curious about, Matt, because obviously you're our CTO, you're our tech visionary here, <laughs> um, it's been four years. A lot of APIs have come up. Mm -hmm. Anything you're excited about? I mean, if you had another crack at Timber, uh, can you hint at maybe some things you might try? Um, in terms of API integrations? I, I, I just say that as the design director, correct me if I'm wrong, like other things that sure. are available now that... Um, I think something that I would try now is um, festivals are a huge part of music going um, in, in the US and even more so in Europe. Uh, and there's not a whole lot of good apps for if you're going to a festival to let you know, you know what do the bands all sound like. Um, they all have their websites that have the lineups and the lineups change and it tells you what stage they're on, but you gotta copy paste and find the YouTube videos and it's tedious and you gotta intentionally do it. It's not the kind of thing you can, you're waiting on the train or you're waiting at a bus stop um, and you got some free five minutes to go listen to some music or, or find out what you're in store for. Um, I think something like Timber could play in that arena really, really well. I, I saw that at South by Southwest this year for the first time, but it was a website, wasn't it? They finally did that where it, it's almost, it's amazing that it took so long to put like an artist image and an embedded sound clip <laughs> right. to be like, oh, that's what they sound like, cool, yeah. next. Um, yeah. And people seem to be in the habit much more nowadays of not really planning things out in advance and wanting to be able to pull their phone out while they're doing something and figure it out. And that's one of the reasons I think native apps are a lot stronger because it's a targeted use case. With the exception of at festivals, because there's so many people at festivals that usually internet doesn't work. And, and I think we're getting past that. Um, a lot of kind of data companies are trying to sponsor festivals at this point and try to get people on data plans where it works. But I think that's been a huge stumbling block for people to try to build technology for festivals is you, 
you'd have to download it all ahead of time. Well, the, the great thing about festivals is that you know the lineup. You do know the lineup ahead of time, right? So, so you, you know, with Timber, yeah. if you're figuring out what's what's going on tonight, that changes constantly, and you yeah. have to get it from an API every every day. Yeah. Um, but for for a festival, if you were to kind of can all of that data, True. Um, you, you could you could preload a, a bunch of sound clips, you could preload a bunch of photos, you could preload all of the data about which bands, which stages, which times, which days. Um, so you could you could really get around that. I think um, all the media is going to be a hefty download, you know, upfront. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, it's interesting to, to, to it look at as well. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. South by Southwest Go deals with this exact problem. So South by Southwest schedule changes happen constantly, mm -hmm. um, but they they're always on the assumption of like last night's download when you're at your hotel room right. or wherever you are yeah. on Wi-Fi charging your phone. That kind of like loads you for the next day, it's right? Like packing your lunch for the next day. Um, and I, I also think about things like the New York City subway map, where it's you know the most simplistic thing, but it just knows that from a UX standpoint. You're not going to probably have connection, so mm -hmm. let's not rely on data for this thing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, Matt, we really appreciate you coming in today. Of course. Um, we work with you every day. I don't think any of us <laughs> have really ever heard this story, so it's very yeah. exciting. And we're all big technology fans and big music fans, so yeah. this is like a this is a dream podcast for us. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say that when I first um, was interviewing with Intrepid, I kind of looked at Intrepid as a partial music company. <laughs> uh, so for any music companies out there. Uh, we are pretty much a big music company. At yeah, our I love music apps. The <laughs> the two that I've really spearheaded here, Cup and, and Timber. You know, I, I've always gone to concerts. I've always listened to music with friends, and a uh, big part of my life. So love it. Yeah, you mentioned Cup. You want to just give us a little teaser of that as we? Uh, sure. I mean, Cup was a, another app that was just sort of incubated here, um, and it's uh, an experience that. In informal settings, listening to music with friends, it's just a collaborative playlist. So one person connected to the speakers by aux cable or Bluetooth or whatever. Um, everyone else can cue any song on Spotify to that one person's phone. Only the, the, the kind of cup holder needs to have Spotify. So it's just a very seamless experience. No, no logging in. Uh, another one of those, just like get to the experience as quick as possible with as, as few barriers and as little friction as possible kind of experiences. That sounds like a preview of possibly our next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want I don't want to monopolize the podcast. But maybe in six months we'll, we'll we'll come back. Cool. So the Intrepid podcast is produced by Intrepid, a mobile design development and strategy firm with offices in Cambridge, Mass, and New York City. Our music is by me, Forrest James. You can visit us on the web at intrepid.io slash podcast and SoundCloud um, at soundcloud.com slash INTPD. If you'd like to be a guest or know someone who would be amazing, visit our website or email us at podcast at intrepid.io.